0: Lord God, uh, thank you that you love us, and in this confused and confusing world, uh, help us to get clarity on what really matters, and as we turn to Scripture now, may that clarity emerge um, uh, in a particularly profound way. Amen. So uh, we're in the series on Hebrews, and uh, if you recall, what I've been saying each week is Hebrews was written to a bunch of people where life was difficult. Uh, another way of putting it, it was written to folk whose worlds were being shaken in all kinds of ways, and their faith was being shaken. They were under attack in all sorts of ways. And in these last couple of chapters of Hebrews, really, the writer starts to sheet home all the implications of this amazing theology that he's been talking about in the previous 11 chapters. And what we're going to look at this morning is uh, is how we as human beings are to find three incredibly significant and central things that matter to all of us. And what's the best way to find these? Where do we find these in an unshakable form? And uh, the three things that I think motivate and drive us profoundly as human beings are uh, security uh, and uh, joy And identity. If you stop and think about it for a moment, we are all driven by a need for security, and not just in the present, but particularly future security, right? So let's think for a moment. How, in our culture, living here in Sydney, uh, how how does our culture seek to find security in this world? Sorry, buying a house? Sorry, house a, car and a beautiful wife. house, a car, and a beautiful wife. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yes, um, okay. A house that you own and a car that you own and a, a job. And law and order. Police, law and order. Good job. Yeah. Pension. Sorry. Pension. pension, pension, superannuation. Big driver, right? Locks on, Locks on the door. That's it. Guns in the gun cabinet. No, sorry, that's America. Um, Yes, yeah, so we are, we're massively oriented towards security. And, and actually what we normally do is we find our security. We buy our security, don't we? Um, even a, a house, a car, and a beautiful wife, these things typically gravitate to, people with, to men with money. I hate to say it. Um, but it is true. We, we, we trust our money to secure us in the future against you know, changes, right? Um, how does that always work for us? How secure is, what is, is the security that money buys real? How secure is it? It can go really quickly, can't it? Uh, Quick question, it's the uh, 30th anniversary, 40th, 40th anniversary of what great financial event? Isn't it 40, 87, 30, 30, thanks Ian, I was thinking 30. Wall Street, yeah, yeah, Black Monday, lose 25%. So actually, uh, you know, uh, you, you can you can wake up one morning and discover that you know a quarter of your net worth has evaporated, or more, vastly more when you add leverage to the piece like we in Australia have done. So how secure is it? Uh, not so. It's easily shaken. Our whole financial world can be shaken. All you need is a war on the North Korean on the Korean Peninsula, a global pandemic of flu, uh, you know, a civil unrest in China that shuts down Chinese growth, and outflow of Chinese money, and uh, you know, interest rates jump up three percent, and the massive bubble of economic security upon in which we inhabit as Australians can just go like that. Right? It's happened before. It'll happen again. But yet we still persist, don't we? So, uh, what about joy? where do we look to, what do we look to for joy in our world? Food. Food. It's nothing quite like smashed avocado and a double shot flat white. That's right. That is uh, joy. Their God is their stomachs. Aren't we obsessed with it? Are we, we're so obsessed with it. We, you know, Some of the best rating TV shows are these stupid programs where it's not just enough to eat the food. You've now got to watch people make the food on your behalf. We're all too busy and stressed uh, and tired to make it ourselves. But somehow, I can find joy from food if I watch you make it. It's really weird. I just, you might guess. I totally don't get that. I have an extraordinarily pragmatic uh, arrangement with food. I eat it. It keeps me alive. That's about it. Um, what else do we look to for joy? Relationships. People. People. What was that? Wine did I hear? Wine. Yeah, relationships, wine. Well, the rabbis, that's a, that's a more biblical one. The rabbis have always said, without wine, there's no joy. And if you want a whole sermon on that, go back online and look at my sermon on John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana. Wine, alcohol, uh, relationships. How unshakable are those? How lasting are those? You know, the irony is, as, peop- as we get older, we, we, we tend to you know, develop an appreciation of fine food and wine, right? Well, we, we all like wine, particularly men. There's this thing I've noticed in my peers and in, in older folk, like as we age, we build a wine cellar and we become more and more, you know, we pontificate with ever greater clarity around the types of wines we enjoy. And But you know, the truth of the matter is, is as we age, our capacity to actually taste difference because our smell receptors declines, So it's all a great big sham. We can actually appreciate less. That's the only reason we enjoy red wine more, because you can taste it less. Speak to any kid. Do you wake up as a five-year-old with your, your, you're able to smell and taste the full range of experiences, and you go, man, I love red You only enjoy red wine as you increasingly become dulled in your senses, right? And then you pontificate and on about how wonderful it is, and you know, hints of black currant and coffee on your, ah, come on. That too will Pass. How about relationships, right? Are they unshakable? Oh. man, all it takes is a you know your front wheel to clip the back wheel of the person in front of you, and suddenly your life gets shaken, right? Now Angus is okay and but it doesn't take much He's still friends with Doug. It wasn't Doug. For those of you who are visiting, one of our members here had a bike accident last Sunday morning, and there's a group of guys who go cycling, and it wasn't Doug who, yeah, it was someone else. So, you know, uh, it doesn't take much, right? It doesn't take much to shake our world of relationships, and suddenly the joy goes. Uh, It doesn't take much. What about our identity? You know, where do we find a sense of self? What what makes us mm, who we are? You know, work, work, solitude, solitude. <laughs> yeah, family, possessions. A closer walk with Jesus. Thanks, Lindsay. That's a, that's that's the end of the sermon. You're 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 wrecking the the narrative suspense I'm trying to build up here. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Look, um, uh, how many people do you know who've built a sense of self on their work and then found that work's been taken away from them? And my mum was a, a doctor till she was 75 and then was forcibly retired because she couldn't, even with taking notes, remember w- what she'd said to the, the patient. Like her memory was really shot. She was, you know, and she'd hidden it so well, like many smart people do, but eventually someone figured out, like, you know, she really couldn't remember. Um, but the, for her, her whole world disintegrated because her identity was her work, uh, you know. Um, they used to say at medical school when I was there, you know, you, you enter as a person and you leave as a doctor. Right? That is your sense of self, particularly prone in the, to those of us in the profession. But it's shakable, it goes, right? Possessions go. The opinion of others turn on a dime. We actually build our sense of self very often from what other people think of us. It's called the reflected sense of self. And what's that like? I mean, our kids are, the, the, the millennials and below are, f- are uh, you know, building their sense of self on the reflected opinions of hundreds of their friends constantly as they carefully curate their uh, Instagram and Snapchat selves and rely upon the feedback they get from those things to have a sense of identity. And that's very shakeable. Oh, my goodness, that can turn. If you've ever watched, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this, how quickly an online crowd's uh, view of you can change like that approval, the opinion of others, relationships, achievements, money. We build our sense of self on these now. They're all shakable. And the question for us is, where do we find an unshakable place to get these things? And Hebrews has the answer. Hebrews says some amazing things about this. Look at what it says. We are going to come... To how do we get this? You have come. It's a it's a present tense describing our experience. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. This is all about uh, future security, right? In the ancient world, as it is today, where you found security was in a city. If you could, and if you were a villager, if you were a subsistence farmer in the ancient world, you were unbelievably vulnerable. Anyone could come in, uh, kill you, overpower you, steal your women and children, uh, steal your crops and your livestock, and, and be off. You know. But in a city, you had walls, and they could protect you. And uh, what the Book of Hebrews is saying is, listen, you're not. You, you've come not to a city that could fall over. Be shaken and be destroyed. You've come to a city that gives you complete, utter, eternal, lasting security. You've come to the city of God, the place where he will be your wall, where he will be your foundation, where he will be your protection. There is your security. St. Augustine uh, wrote a book called The City of God. And he said there are really uh, two cities in the world. There is the city of Beeping. And the city, (laughs) there's the city of man, as he called it, city of people, and the city of God. And Augustine wrote this book after the fall of Rome, the city of Rome. Let's just see what's, can we just figure out who's beeping like that? Is it the kitchen? It's the oven? The oven's catching fire? Oh, so we, no, we need a good fire here. Okay, send the. Okay, so uh, Rome, for centuries, had been the empire that provided security for everyone. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that meant that you could live in security and peace. It was this impregnable, mighty empire, and it had fallen. I think four ten A.D. The sacking of Rome, destroyed. This was an event that shook the foundations of civilization. People of faith, people not of faith, everyone. If Rome can fall, then nothing and no one is secure. And, and St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, and he said, listen... Every human city is going to be shakable, is going to fall. The only city that won't fall, the only thing in the world that provides ultimate security is not the city of man, but the city of God, this habitation that God has made for us. So we need to learn to say our fundamental security lies in being citizens of this city. Everything else will go. Everything else will go. But you have come. You have come. It's your current possession. We live with dual citizenship. <laughs> you know, I don't see anyone here. But this isn't citizenship that will preclude you from standing for Australian Parliament. <laughs> uh, this is citizenship that is, uh, is far greater than that. It says you can, be, you can be a citizen of Sydney, you can be a citizen of Australia, but your ultimate security comes if you live in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's the first thing it gives. The, the Hebrew says, "Look, look to the city of God for security." Where, where else does it say? So you've also come. What else have we come to? You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Well, it says, "If you, what do we really find in God? We find joy, don't we? Uh, we find joy. How so? Well, I if you thought, do you ever think much about angels?" No, probably not. Uh, I've been thinking quite a bit about angels, and actually when you read the Bible, angels are everywhere. I think our spiritual lives could be greatly enhanced by a lot more focus uh, and thinking about angels, because wherever God is in the Bible, there are angels. Right back from the start, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve get cast out of the garden, in that story, and they look back, what's there guarding the entrance to the garden? An angel with a flaming sword. There's angels everywhere. When Jacob encounters uh, God in the desert, there are angels. There are angels everywhere. When Jesus comes, there are angels. There are there are angels everywhere. And uh, what the writer of Hebrews says is, listen: if you want real joy, here's the thing: you've come to a place, to a situation, to a an existence where you are part of an ecstatic party of myriads of angels, spiritual beings. So uh, this is the, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this little word here, joyful assembly, actually uh, is an interesting Greek word that really can be translated like an ecstatic party. (laughs) So in this world, this spiritual realm that Hebrews is saying, there are countless gazillion spiritual beings in complete joyful ecstasy continually. And we're part of that. We've been dropped in to a spiritually ecstatic, eternal party of joy that can never end. That's pretty cool. That's a picture of church, right? Right? Yeah, sort of. On a good Sunday. <laughs> well, think about this. It's, it's actually more profound than just angels. What is filling the angels with so much joy? Why are they so happy? And why can we be so happy as we join with them in this party? Well, uh, let's, let's think a little theologically here. Uh, the Bible says that the central claim of Christianity is that the heart of the universe is a God who is a triune community of persons in joyful love. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always existed forever and for always in a community of love. Okay, now, what's the greatest joy we can have in life as persons? Well, it's to be in the presence of someone we adore. When you're with someone who you just adore, that is incredibly wonderful, isn't it? What, though, that's not actually the greatest joy. What makes that experience even better? I'm with someone I adore, and that's amazing. What makes it even better if they adore me back? Ha! if two people in a relationship of mutual adoration is the greatest joy that we can experience. And what the Bible says is that the very heart of the universe is a triune community of mutual adoration, Father, Son, and Spirit loving each other. The Son loves the Father and adores the Father, and the Father loves and adores the Son, and the Holy Spirit loves and adores the Son, and the Son loves and adores the Spirit. And this goes on forever and for always. And then there are, there's a myriad of angels, of spiritual beings that are drawn into that love who find their greatest joy in adoring this community, and what the Bible says is that joy is available to you and to me, think about it. Our greatest, lasting, unshakable joy is to be drawn into the very experience of the love of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we become people who forever and for always just adore God. Just, uh, and we, we are so full of love for God. It, it, it is our greatest joy. But even more profoundly than that, we are invited into a reality where the triune God of the universe adores you. The, uh, if you've ever been really adored or loved by somebody else, that is just a glimpse a foretaste of what it must be like to be adored by the greatest, most infinite, powerful, exquisite being in all of reality. <laughs> Imagine being adored by God. Like, what, what in this world can compare? Have you thought about that for yourself? I mean, you see, our problem is uh, well, we have we have many problems. And you'd say, yes, Mark, I know. I look at you and I see all your problems. But listen, I think probably my biggest problem, and quite possibly your biggest problem, is this. I believe the lie that if I really follow God, I'm going to be just slightly miserable. <laughs> Don't we? Like, if I'm really serious about God, it's somehow I'm going to be condemned to a slightly lesser life. You know, when you think of the word Puritans or Puritanical, does that does that exude joy? Pur- you're like Christianity, you're, you're a bunch of wowzers, and and if you you know you've got to come to God and out of duty and he, you know follow Jesus and he'll make you miserable, but at least you'll be saved for what we don't really know—eternal misery. I don't know. The, that's a lie. And you see, when I understand that at the heart of the universe, God's plan for me, and actually what he says my present experience should be and is, is that I know what it's like to be adored by God and in return to adore God, and that is the greatest joy imaginable. I think that starts to change everything. That's my source of unshakable joy that I'm, I have come into this ecstatic party. So why is the church in the West? Why are we typically so miserable? or not miserable, we're just kind of, yeah, yeah. I don't know, it's really weird, isn't it? It sort of seeps into us, just as, yeah. It might be cultural, you know, because Australians, we don't, you know. It's our British roots, our convict roots. I don't know. But where's the joy? Where's the ecstatic party? That and I just think it's cause we Well, there's a whole big diagnosis there. I'll leave it with that question. Where is it? How can we have more of it? More joy to know that is extraordinary. Okay, so the final thing that we're offered here is the sense of identity. And look at this, we've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's What's that saying? That's saying, listen, God is going to give you your name. He's going to give you your sense of self, your identity, and it is stable and it is secure. Your name can't be taken away or your identity or self can't be taken away as people's opinions of you change or as you change. It's the most significant, substantial thing about you that is, it's a gift to you. Uh, we all construct our sense of self fundamentally on the basis of how other people experience us, right? So from a very, you know, you're born, right? And uh, what, what happens? What's the fundamental part of the formation of the sense of self and identity in a newborn? Is, uh, and, and by the way, I think this is why God organized breastfeeding in the way he did, uh, because he's organized the anatomy of, uh, of the whole human experience, that for countless hours, as the baby feeds, what is their experience? Their experience of the other is of complete safety, security, nurturing love, and looking up into the gaze of mum. And what they find in the gaze of mum is somebody who loves them, and you build a sense of self, that, that I am loved. As they look, I am loved. The world is a good place. I am valuable. I am nurtured. And that's the, right from the start. Our sense of self is given to us by how other people think of us. But listen, <laughs> is our experience of how other people think of us and relate to us always as good as a mum uh, breastfeeding their beautiful little child? Well, no. Like, actually, the deepest wounds on our souls come from how other people make us feel about ourselves and how we see ourselves in the gaze of others. You know what that's like, when someone who one who should love you turns their eyes away from you because cause they can't, they, they they just you don't matter to them anymore. They can't look you in the eyes. When you look into the eyes of your mum or your dad and you see just that flicker of disappointment, and you know in that moment that you're not good enough for them. When you look into the eyes of an older person who is safe and secure, and instead of love and security, you see the flicker of lust, and you know you're vulnerable, you know you're an object. We have deep, deep wounds from this reflected sense of self that we get from others. And we wound others with the way they experience themselves in our gaze of them. And against all of that, God says to us, listen, I will give you a sense of self from my writing your name in heaven. Your identity, who you are, the fundamental you of you is given to you. And that is the best thing in the world. Imagine that. Imagine to say, I don't have to try and make myself who I am. I don't have to rely on what you think of me for me to be me. Now what is given to me is myself from God. A God who is infinitely good and infinitely loving. And who's, in whose gaze I will never see a flicker of malice or lust or disapproval or derision. Never or contempt. I'll never see that. My name is written in heaven, and that do you know how. Do you know how good new, Do you know how good news? How good this good news is? That's what I meant to say. How good is this good news? Well, Jesus reckons it's pretty amazingly good news. In Luke chapter ten, uh, he sends out. Uh, 72 people, and goes. they go out on missions, says, go out and preach the gospel and heal people, do all sorts of stuff. So they go and they return. They're super happy. They return with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they're like, man, I've been working. Uh, and in my work, I've discovered this incredible joy. Like I've got this spiritual superpowers. just... Choo- Casting out demons, setting people free, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking. It's amazing kind of spiritual pyrotechnics, which are wonderful. And what does Jesus say? He says in verse 20, "However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but what? That your names are written in heaven. Ha. Huh. Don't build your identity on what you can do. Find your identity in what God has given you. He's written your name in heaven. He said you're mine. Wow. Wow. That's good news, eh? That's good news. So we get our security, our joy, and our identity by coming to God. That's awesome. But listen, is it really? Really? <laughs> How do we come to God in a way that we find these things? Because coming to God is not always a good experience, is it? We can come to God in a way that is a very, very bad experience. And this is, the, this is what was true of the, of the Israelites. Look, verse 18 through 21. They came to God, and what they encountered there was misery and gloom and judgment and death. how so? Well, do you know why? Do you know why it worked this way for them? Because they came to God on their own terms to use their religion as a way of gaining these things. They said, I'll come on my terms, I'll be religious, I'll sort myself out, and I will use God to provide me with these things. Religion became just another means of trying to build uh, a security, joy, and identity. Uh, So coming to God in our own... (laughs) Coming to God as we are actually is a terrifying experience. I mean, we're drawn to God, right? But you and I know we are so flawed, aren't we? I mean, we are so flawed. We all build our security on things other than God, our joy on things other than God, our identity in things other than God. And when we come to God, what do we discover? Actually, our first encounter with God is almost always one of terror. We run from God. We hide from God. We have this myth that everyone's looking for God. That's not true. Most of us are running. Actually, no, it's probably not, even that's not true. It's more nuanced than that. We're both running and hiding at the same time. We're running towards God and hiding from God. We have this deeply ambivalent relationship with God, a bit like the relationship a moth has with a flame. A moth is drawn to the flame, but the closer it gets to the flame, uh, you know, in the end it's consumed by the flame. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is deeply for us. When we come to God in our own sense of self and strength, what we discover is the closer we get to God, the more our own brokenness and inadequacy is exposed, right? Like the, brighter the the closer you get to the bright light, the more the darkness in our own souls is exposed. The closer we get to the brightness of God's radiance, the more the stains on our souls, the more the weaknesses are exposed. The closer I get to God... According to Hebrews, the more exposed I am, the more it is made crystal clear that I've looked for security in myself, not in God. The more it's made crystal clear that I've looked for joy in the things of this world, the, you know, the fleeting pleasures of sin, to quote an earlier passage in Hebrews, than in God. The, the closer I get to God, the more I see that I've tried to make my own life, my own identity on my own uh, works and religion and effort. And so the human experience is to experience God as dangerous, as threatening, as overwhelming, as terrifying. This was the experience of religious people, right? Reli- deeply religious people. It's not, just, it's not just Moses in Mount Sinai that we hear. It's like Isaiah. 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 Chapter six, he has this incredible experience of God and what's his response? Woe to me, I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's it's a terrifying thing to see God. We also, oh, we, I think, you know, I've done a good job of selling you on the idea that you need God to give you these three things, but actually the reality is we're terrified of God. Our God is a consuming fire. The question is, the, 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 the tension of the human existence is, I desperately need God to give me these three things, but if I come to God, I'm going to be burnt to a crisp. My brokenness and inadequacy is going to be exposed. I'm going to be crushed, aren't I? It's like um, if you experience real glory or greatness in someone else, it just highlights how inadequate you are. I used to think I was quite smart. Uh, I used to think I could, uh, you know, I could write good theology and I had, was capable of some profound insights. And then when I was 21, I started reading a Swiss-German theologian called Karl Barth. And as I read Barth, what happened? His unbelievable intellectual brilliance shriveled up my intellectual pretensions as I went, woe, to, woe is me, I'm a bear of little brain, (laughs) and I've encountered uh, a person of an extraordinary brain. And so the tension we have as human beings is we, we want security, we want joy, we want an identity, and in our heart of hearts, we're drawn. We know that nothing this world offers, and we're drawn to God, but as we're drawn to God, we know that this is terrifying because it shows how we failed. So how do we get it? Well, we come to God as judge. You have come to God, the judge of all. You go, how's that good news? To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How can we come to God and not be consumed by God? Well, it's because God has made a way. What's the way? It's the blood of Jesus. See, what, what, did, what was the blood of Abel? Cain, early story, Genesis, Cain kills his brother Abel, and Abel's blood cries out. What's Abel's blood crying out for? Justice. Justice. Vengeance, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Cain, you must die because of what you have done to Abel. That's the cry. You, you deserve to be punished. What is, the, what is the blood of Jesus cry out as Jesus, the Son of God, dies on the cross and as his blood drips down and is shed onto that Palestinian hilltop? What is his blood crying out to all of the universe? It's saying, though you are guilty and you deserve to die, I will die in your place. The exact opposite of the blood of Abel. It says there is now a new covenant where, where though you are guilty and deserve to die because I died in your place, you can be free. And you can now come to God with all every bit of imperfection, every bit of sin every bit of self-centeredness, covered over, cleansed, healed, so that you won't discover God to be a judge who destroys you, but you'll, be a, you'll discover God to be a judge who declares you completely innocent and then welcomes you into his home and his heart forever. There's one last metaphor that makes this so powerfully real. It says at the end, our God is a consuming fire. That's right. The consuming fire of God is designed to burn off every impurity, every bit of evil, every bit of injustice in us and in this world, to purify the world. But now the problem that the Israelites discovered in Hebrews that we saw in Mount Sinai is if God's presence burns off all impurity, then no wonder we're in trouble because we are so full of impurities. But yet, the consuming fire of God has fallen in one place already, so it doesn't have to fall again. Where's that? Where's the safest place to be when there's a bushfire coming, apart from your swimming pool or somewhere else? You want to be on a place that's already been burnt because fire can't burn the same thing twice. So that's why you backburn. You create this place of safety where the flames can't come. And what Hebrews is saying is, listen, on Jesus, the consuming fire of God to purify everyone from sin has fallen on Jesus Christ. And so the way we can now come to God and not be consumed is to stand on the place where his fire has already fallen. To come to Jesus and hold on to him and say his fire has fallen on Jesus. He has been burnt and consumed for us so that we can be free, forgiven, find in God everything we need. And this is an unshakable reality. Why? Because on the cross, not only did Jesus' blood speak a better word, not only did the fire of God fall on Jesus so that it won't have to fall on us. But on Jesus, the world was shaken in our place. The shaking down, the judgment, the pulling apart of all reality that happens when we build our lives on things other than God. This happened to Jesus on the cross. I don't know if you've ever read these words, but this is what it says in Matthew 27. What happens at the moment of Jesus' death... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then what happened? The earth shook. Judgment came. The shaking of the world, the breaking down of and crushing of everything that has been built on a foundation other than God happened. The rock split, the tombs broke open, uh, and when the centurions and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. At the death of Jesus, the world was shaken apart. Judgment came so that for those of us who now trust Jesus... We'll never be shaken apart and we can build our lives on this unshakable foundation. So come to Jesus. That's it. That's it. Don't come to God trusting in your own righteousness, trusting in your own achievements. Don't make God just another thing you use to try and build a life of security or joy or identity. Just come to Jesus. You've done it all for me and find in him. Everything and more that you've ever longed for. How about it? Are you there? Are you there? Are you trusting Jesus more than anything else? And, there, and, and if you are, the the, the the end result will be thankfulness and worship. That's how the passage ends. Are you there? I want to. I mean, I, you know, friends, it is possible to sit in church your entire life. Actually, you need to go home to eat and so on. But like you can come to Sunday services and be in small groups your entire life and never make the shift from God as a consuming fire who I'm sort of slightly scared of to to a deep change my heart encounter with Jesus. So now I find in him my entire security, joy, and identity. I think it would be a great tragedy, wouldn't it? If we never really came to Jesus, let's pray, our Lord and God, uh, I just ask you to have mercy on us, even as uh people who've been in church, some of us for the the, the vast majority of our lives, we recognize it's still easy lord to to f- look for our security, our joy, and our identity in things other than you. And then, Lord, the great danger we're in is we're going to find you in the end as a consuming fire. And you can consume us because really we've not built our lives on you. And so the shaking of this of the world will, will, will kill us, Lord. And I beg you that this morning you will just speak to us and work on our hearts so that we'll know this morning that we are trusting solely. In Jesus and his life and death and resurrection for us. That we'll be clinging to him. We'll be standing under the burnt ground of the cross. We'll be, we'll be listening to the, the better word of the blood of Jesus for us. Oh Jesus, come. Pour your Holy Spirit out on us. Make this so real for us now. I beg you Lord. Amen.